Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to welcome back returning guest, Dr. Josie McSkimming, all the way from Sydney, Australia. It's been way too long, so thank you for dropping back in to Mindship Podcast. Thank you. I don't know how long it's been. Oh, man. It's, yeah. we. I think we did a recording probably 2017, I'm going to say. Oh, At least. It was a long time. Oh, <laughs> way okay. too long. Right. Okay. And obviously, we follow each other on Twitter and everything else, so we stay in touch. Yeah. And we. It's been a yeah. little bit of a uh, go-around to get this recording scheduled, hasn't it? Because, of course, it has. it's afternoon there in, in Australia, and here it is about 7 o'clock in the morning here in the UK. So yes. I'm happy to get up early to talk to you. Well, that's, that's, that's great. Um, yes. You know, I love talking about all this stuff, as you know. As you know, yes, it's our passion sort of, and I'm interested to talk about your backstory a little bit, and then you're yeah. a psychotherapist, you deal with clients who have all sorts yeah. of issues coming out of religion, or maybe they're still in religion. I'm interested yeah. to hear your sort of diagnostic work and your social care work. Can you sure. briefly give us maybe a, a, I know people may have heard our episode before or heard you on other shows. But can you give yeah. us a, a kind of a thumbnail sketch of your backstory in religion? Yeah, well, it's a very lengthy one. Hmm. Um, I didn't grow up in um, a kind of a evangelical or fundamentalist family. Um, my father was from a Jewish background. My mother was Methodist. He, though, wasn't a practicing Jew. The family was uh, buried all their Jewishness. There was a whole lot of shame around that. So my parents ended up sort of in some compromises, high Anglican. Mm. Um, so that wasn't my background. I was converted at a, at a church camp. Right. Um, I became very devout very quickly as a young person. I was sort of convinced I had the truth of the universe. I was the youngest child in the family. I kind of wanted something of my own, felt a little bit on the outer with the family. So this was my thing and I had a kind of a passionate intensity obsession, I mm-hmm. guess, through my teenage years. I was a, a leader at church camps, at the Christian group that used to meet at school, and then I was fully fledged by the time I got to university. Right. Camp, you were all in. Ministry, ministry training. Yeah, I was all in. Right. Um, you name it, you were doing it. <laughs> By an absolute miracle, and I'm kind of thinking I had some good judgment back then, I stayed in my profession after I finished university Mm. um, as a social worker and have worked as a social worker my whole adult life since I was 21, and I'm so glad I didn't go down the full ministry training route Mm. because then I would be unemployed and unemployable. Exactly. There's yeah. a lot of people that that's happened to, hasn't it? I absolutely know that. I know that yeah. professionally and personally. Friends that it's happened to and, of course, um, clients who I work mm-hmm. with. So, um, yeah, and my, like a lot of people, my exit 
from all things evangelical and fundamentalist was slow, probably over about 20 years. Mm. And as you know, I've um, written um, a research book around this topic. I understand my own exit, as I've described in the book, as being like um, the emergence of a double life, as a lot of people are similar to me. You are mm-hmm. fully immersed, but underneath there's this simmering doubt and dissonance and confusion. You're arguing externally for, you know, against gay relationships. You're arguing externally that women shouldn't be in leadership over men and yet you kind of are thinking, I don't really believe this, but it's completely unacceptable Mm. to say such things because of the ramifications of such murmurings Mm. and stirrings. Anyway, eventually there's enough of these moments or, as I've called them, sites of injury Mm. that your more authentic self kind of breaks through and you navigate that journey of fear and terror and guilt and find yourself on the other side. And Mm. for me, um, I last attended a church um, January 2009. Mm. Wow. So that's a while ago. It's been a while. It's been a while. Just a few years. It's yeah. interesting you say that that um, when you have those authentic self moments that come through, they bubble up from you know from way down below. I was yeah. just reading. I went through Marlene Winnell's book, Leaving the Fold, a few months ago, and something yeah. she said struck me. She said that when you're in evangelicalism or fundamentalist Christianity, when you have those doubts, that's actually your authentic self saying, "I don't believe this," but you stuff it down, you repress it, but eventually yeah. you can't. Well, a lot of people just still do, don't they? They stay in their well, religion. They stay in it. But, you know, somebody in my um, research that I've done, um, are we allowed to swear on your podcast or not? Yes, you I think sometimes you need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, she said, and it was quite true, that you have enough of these moments that you go, what the F? Because you realise, what are you doing? They all mm-hmm. kind of join together. It's like kind of the dominoes all fall, mm-hmm. you know. Look, I think for me it was when I thought there really isn't any hell the way I've understood it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd kind of those simmerings have been happening and then it just happened quite quickly. I thought this makes no rational psychological or emotional sense and I, and I think that was kind of perhaps the the big cognitive dissonance. That was the moment. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there's so many analogies, isn't there? Something that I think Dr. Yanya Lalich talks about, that mental shelf that sits in the back of our mind, and we just throw those doubts and questions and issues and problems on that shelf. But there comes a point at which the shelf cannot sustain the weight of all the stuff we put in it. (laughs) crashes to the floor that's a great that's a great analogy it really is we're all taught to put them on that shelf don't trust your feelings Mm -hmm. and and you know and then there's all this kind of internal dialogue well if they all believe it it must be true this is just doubt but you know there's so much in the 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 bible these circular arguments about Mm -hmm. 
prayer and why prayer doesn't happen and you know yeah, suffering suffering that's a big one no sense that's a big one oh huge you just and they just go all but onto that shelf um yeah and it's it is interesting because that's what you're taught to do you know god's bigger than you let go and let god mm-hmm. God understands, you don't understand, trust the providence yep. of God. There's so many injunctions to not listen. Mm-hmm. So it does take quite a lot of boldness and risk to start that process of allowing, whether we call it our authentic self or sometimes I call it my preferred self mm. because I, I got a lot of selves and those selves back there, I don't want to despise them all. You know, because I was in the church a long time, you know. Um, but now it's a much more kind of preferred sense of self. Mm-hmm. The ground is, it kind of feels so much better. Mm-hmm. There's no more mental shelf that you're piling up. <laughs> oh, no, no, There's no. so many things. And you're that's so right that you say that we are taught mm-hmm. to put those things on that mental shelf. I can remember saying to people as a pastor, well, sometimes God doesn't, answer all these doubts and problems and why he's allowing suffering and all the rest of it we'll get an answer in heaven that's the ultimate answer sure. isn't it well well we won't know this side of heaven sort of thing just wait till you die i guess and I, then, I i used to think that too that yeah. whole kind of pie in the sky when you die thing exactly it it, it, it just doesn't make sense but mm-hmm. i used to think that all the time mm-hmm. you know that and sort of predestination and the elect, who's yeah. in and who's out. There was so much cruelty and capriciousness about mm-hmm. who was in and who was out. None of that makes sense. But, of course, mm-hmm. that all just went on the shelf or was pressed down and became just this subterranean self. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's so sort true. Of comforting to know that when you look back on your life, that subterranean self was there because sometimes I've looked back on my life and thought, oh, my goodness, I was a monster. Mm. Um, That monstrous theology and ideology that I promoted. It really is. uh, The the videos I made, how to evangelise your friends, even even the the groups about um, reorientation for gay people to reorient. Mm. All the time I was there, I thought this is bullshit. So right. I kind of remember that, and that's helpful, I think. It was trying to reassert itself. Well, it's another thing you mentioned, too, that mm. I was thinking Dr. Robert J. Lifton. I just did an episode about his mm. eight markers of cults, and one of the things I talked about was this concept of doubling And he says, for people who come into a religion later in life, they already had an authentic self before they started, which is your story. You were not a Christian before, then you became a Christian. And he says, you almost have to create a second self, the religious self, to fit in and into the group, into the community. But all the time, that authentic self is still there. And eventually, it reasserted itself. And now you've got to go back and recover, as it were, the authentic or preferred self, as you say. And it takes, it takes a while because, you know, I became a Christian when I was only about 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. So that's young. That's so very it's young. So calling who you were before then and the kind of the shattered self, you know, and understanding why the so-called message of the gospel was so attractive at that time. 
It's understanding your own vulnerability and tenderness that those words or that ideology kind of landed like it mm-hmm. did. It, it, it's quite effortful to think it through. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm still doing it. I'm kind of trying to write another book mm-hmm. about my, it's a little bit complicated. I'm writing a book about my late sister because her death was one of those moments where, you know, my, my exit was mm-hmm. firmly established. Yeah, I remember and, you talking um, about that on our last yeah, chat. So I'm, kind of that's right. So I'm trying the last to write straw the sort of thing. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to write the book now about her life and my life. And while she was becoming a pagan, how I was becoming this kind of monstrous evangelical. Right. You were doubling down. It was incredible. And how we um, came together. Thankfully, before she died, I had left. Imagine yeah. if you hadn't, though. I mean, the regret you'd have now would be I, it shocking. It would be huge. I also apologised to her, which mm-hmm. I didn't, um, only months before she died, about some of the dreadful things I'd said to her because she was gay. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so glad I apologised because that mm. my judgmentalism has so damaged the relationship. That's and I'm so sure true. people listening to this will have relatives in their family that they have judged or condemned. And it's very painful to remember the things that you said and did, you know, in good faith as a Christian person, but nonetheless very harmful. Mm -hmm. Well, and the willingness to just dump a relationship over being quote unquote right, because we've had it happen to us on the other side, because my oldest daughter is gay. And my yeah, one of my sisters yeah. is a total fundamentalist Christian. We don't have a relationship anymore because of those hurtful things that she said to us and about our daughter, how she's going to hell and all the rest of it for coming out as gay. And, you know, so I just said, that's it. I'm not going to be in a relationship with you because you're too toxic. And of course, she walked away from it. I'm sure she feels justified, as you say, because what she yeah. said was the yeah. truth about yeah. my daughter being gay and it's a choice and it's a sinful lifestyle and all the rest of it. You can hear it all now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I do. And I, the awful part is that I could hear it coming out of my own mouth. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of thinking of the grace of my sister to keep our connection so strong over mm-hmm. the years until I could exit that we managed to stay connected even through the, the really bad times. So, yeah, so it's been quite a journey to write this. Let's mm. just hope within the next couple of years it will be available. Um, it'll and, be out there. Yeah, it'll be out there. So, you know, and maybe people will find something for themselves in that. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, probably more interested in my sister's life than mine. Sure. But there's another aspect, going back to this issue of doubling, I was thinking too, we're eventually working our way towards recovery and rebuilding and all that. But this issue of the people like me, I didn't have an authentic self because I was raised in fundamentalist Christianity. So this is another thing. You've got what I call first generation and then second generation or third, fourth, fifth, however many generations your family was in that cult or religion, you were raised in it. So I feel like for me, I never had even those 10 years that you had. I was raised from day one. I was in church. I was taught to believe it was all true. So I'm now on this journey of figuring out who the hell am I just full stop. 
I never had a, a pre-religious identity, you know. It's so that's a different kind How of journey. How old were you when you kind of felt that you were finally out, if you know what I mean? Well, it's been How about 10 or 12 years. So I was early 40s, mid 40s. Oh, you know, it's been a long, yeah. long time. Yeah, and yeah, like yeah, you said, it was yeah. a very slow journey. And then I had to realize, I mean, I explained to somebody, it's like I was on this journey of jettisoning all the sort of non-essential what I considered beliefs in Christianity and holding on to the few that were, I really thought I've got to hold on to these, but eventually there were none left. There were no pieces left. And then I sat there and I thought, well, I'm not even a Christian anymore. How did that happen? It just was a slow, long process. And then Very I've had to sort of think, okay, well, who's, who's the person I do I want to be? Who's the actual Clint in there? You know, yeah. so that's another whole, I think, a slightly different storyline to the person like yourself who who had an, an authentic self before they joined the religion. I think it's very interesting, too, that whole and, you know, I've been interested in this for ages about that creation of what what I've called your own ethical substance, mm. because that's one of the key parts about the reconstruction of a of an authentic or a preferred identity is that you've got to uh, rebuild your whole ethical frame. Yeah. All the kind of the principles and the commitments and the things that really make your heart sing, you've got to find all of that again because you had that rigid structure mm -hmm. of the church and the Bible and the inspired word of God. And, Mm -hmm. You kind of start right at the beginning, you know, you work through everything, sexual relationships, termination, abortion, male-female relationships. It's kind of refreshing and invigorating. I mean, the part that I have found the most enjoyable is that I can make new relationships and even reconnect with old relationships without wondering or worrying about people's eternal destination. I don't have to always be this covert or overt evangelist, which kind of polluted and tainted and complicated so many relationships. Mm. You know, that's yep. a real new ethical substance because true. it was kind of unethical what we did before. It's true. Every relationship, yeah, with some sort of metric about, is this person a Christian? What do I need to do? Yeah. I'm actually building a relationship with them for the purposes of proselytizing and evangelizing. Yeah. It's not I because I like you as a person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always be closing, as they say. It's like a sales pitch, isn't it? You're <laughs> like working for Amway or one of these companies, and it's you're actually not being their friend because you genuinely want to be their friend and all that. You're actually saying... I'm building a relationship with you for the purposes of you trusting me enough to then share the gospel with you. You know, it's really insidious, isn't it? It was so stressful. It was so stressful. Oh my God. So stressful. And, and to not think nobody is my mission field. These aren't mm -hmm. my mission field. And it means that the relationship has got sort of so much a possibility and capacity. You know, as we talk about all this reconstruction. Yeah, that, that's the thing that really does come to mind. It's this rebuilding of ethics, which at first is daunting, but mm -hmm. is then exciting and refreshing and I think invigorating and really ultimately life-giving. And yes. speaking as, as a psychotherapist, um, my background is a social worker and I'm a clinical social worker, in fact, accredited mental health social worker, mm -hmm. Speaking in that way, I think this is a really key part 
about how people can recover to actually start thinking through with some freedom in therapy and some latitude about what their ethics are. It's so true. Daunting, but as I say, it's necessary. Well, I can give you an example just from my own recent life of exactly what you're describing. Okay, so about a year ago, I separated from my wife. We've been married for nearly 30 years, and we got married in the complete religious context. So coming out of purity culture, coming out of all that, we were getting married to serve God together. We were I was going off to Bible college. I was going to be some sort of a teacher or a pastor. That was the vision. I spent decades, you know, going to seminary and getting a PhD and all that. And that had a huge impact on the end of ending of our marriage because I spent so much time and money pursuing this, you know, godly vocations and all that. It did play a factor. But now that I'm single, we're actually divorced. The thought of, you know, meeting someone new, let's say, is completely, I've got to rethink that whole thing because I'm not coming from purity culture. I'm not, I'm not seeking someone who's a Christian. You know, I would think before I've got to find someone who's a Christian. I can't marry someone who's not a believer and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's so completely different. I can hear those voices in my mind. I bet. You know? And, you know, that mental furniture still sits in your head because a lot of my clients who are in a similar situation than you're describing kind of think, oh, well, maybe it'd be easier if they're a Christian or maybe I need to find somebody who's sort of Christian but liberal Christian. Maybe I need to find somebody who's peripheral, progressive (laughs) Christian. Still hanging on just a little bit. (laughs) It's just all this kind of bargaining and anxiety and fear. I mean, I too was, um, you know, married under those circumstances. I got Mm. married at 21. No. Way too young. 22. I can't even think. 22. I can't even remember how far back. And I kind of think that it was luck that Mm. my husband and I both went on different deconstruction journeys at different paces and eventually met at the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were able to, you know, through some, you know, stormy times, work things out. But it's, you know, I said love, honour and obey on my wedding day. Oh, we said it all. Oh, we all said the it all. <laughs> From the Bible. So that, that, that wedding service, if I could do it again, I would. <laughs> Same here, yeah. Our, our pastor preached about a 40-minute sermon. And it yeah. was, you know, we look back to the cringeworthy moments, you know. He pulled and out I all just, the stops. All those people who were there, all my work colleagues and yep. all cringeworthy. had to through this evangelical, totally inappropriate, and you must have hated it. Mm -hmm. The irony was the sister who I'm writing the book about, when they said, you know, love, honour, obey, and I said, yes, I will, she leaned over and said to my mother, that will be the bloody day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good luck with that one. She knew. She knew, though. Yeah. Yeah that I wasn't going to love, honour, and obey. Exactly. Again, I mean, I, yeah, I hear nonsense. you. We said the same things, all the vows. In your case, or I should say, in our case, we're lucky too that my ex and I, we've stayed very, very close. We, we're very good friends. 
we partied that's amicably and we good. talked a lot about it and we were on a similar deconstruction journey as well so that that's you know certainly worked and in our favor because i know lots of people i've heard from on social media who one partner is deconstructing whereas the other tends to double down even more like you did with your sister i suppose and that can destroy a marriage it can destroy a relationship especially if you've got oh, kids yeah. imagine if you've yeah. got kids in a church and one person wants to keep them in that system whereas the other one doesn't that could lead to huge conflict well it does and certainly in my research and in my clinical work this is not uncommon mm-hmm. and you have the person who's deconstructing whose faith and beliefs are sort of falling apart in their hands they kind of want to go back they want mm-hmm. to go back to the sureness of that community the stability of that relationship but they can't in all mm-hmm. integrity. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, I work with people who are trying to figure out how to tell their partner that they actually are not a Christian anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't want to participate. They don't want to be a part of the community. And how to do it, they're in positions of leadership. You would so know And that's part of my work, work to support people, to not hurry them along, and again, to try and establish what their ethical frame is so that they can act in congruence with their ethics so that they can have some integrity in this process. Mm -hmm. It's it's very hard and it can take a long time. It's got to be so hard, especially if there's finances involved, if that's your vocation. And you don't want to do it anymore. You don't believe it anymore. You're not going to stand up in front and continue to, you know, parrot the party line, as it were. But that's your livelihood. I talk to people who kind of do sermons that are a little bit more um, progressive, or we say, or kind of so they can maintain some authenticity or integrity with themselves while they're doing this. But, Mm -hmm. yes, whereas underneath something is sort of simmering and stirring, as I've said, that is not um, congruent with with their exterior self. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. As I say, people can be unemployed and unemployable and have to retrain. You know, I've Mm -hmm. had, and you would know this, I've had clients who have been ministers and pastors have gone back, they've become school teachers. Mm -hmm. They, They have to in their 30s, 40s and 50s earn their money in another way and they're broke it's terrible it's true i'm in the same boat luckily for Mm -hmm. me like you i had another vocation you know when i was in the Mm -hmm. navy the the government paid for me through the gi bill to go to a trade school way back in the 80s so i have a trade that i've always done as a carpenter builder that kind of thing which I've always fallen back on. And that luckily I have that qualification. So now I teach at a college over here in the UK. And I'm really, really, really fortunate that I had that in my back pocket because I could have done the job, but I needed that qualification to get the job in the first place. You have to have exactly some you know, right. credentials. So exactly I'm very, right. very, but you say that it's so true. There's a lot of people, the only credentials they have is a seminary degree and a Bible college degree, and that's not going to help you get a job, you know, in a lot <laughs> of places you could be, you could be very well educated, but not vocationally trained for that specific skill or trade. And yeah, you're 40, 50 years old, you're suddenly going back to school to learn a complete new thing. Yeah. And I think that's why some people look, there's lots of reasons why people stay. 
lots of reasons, Mm -hmm. you know. People stay, I think, for a long time because they want to change things from the inside. And maybe we've talked about that before. I did, others did, and you did. We kind of think maybe we can kind of change things for the better. We can make things more progressive. We can work towards honouring women, you know, finding some place, be a little bit subversive. I tried for ages, but um, the cost is way too high. It's true. And nobody wants to hear it anyway, really. Nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> no you're, you're, listening. You know, in Australia, we say you're pissing in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. I did the same thing. I can see that journey is so similar to yours because the last several years when I was still teaching at a Bible college over here in the UK, I had this sort of vision of being more progressive, as you say. And I think I did influence some of my students on some level. I, I know I did because I still hear from some of them, even on Facebook and places like that, where they say, you know, you really made me think and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think, OK, so I did do something there. But basically, yeah, yeah the reason I started this podcast originally all those years ago was to be that voice of you know change from the inside. But nobody was listening. So and I was deconstructing anyway. No, it's so. interesting, isn't it? It is interesting yeah. that kind of that as you leave, as you withdraw, the church withdraws from you. And mm-hmm. there's some research that suggests that that is the case. It's true. And I guess, like a lot of people, I had enormous fear of the judgment and the condemnation and mm-hmm. the um, rubbishing of me behind yeah. my back. And, Shunning. You know, I was certainly blacklisted for various mm. counselling positions. I used to be mm-hmm. on all the Christian counselling lists, which I'm certainly not on anymore. But what I wasn't prepared for was the the um, the waters closing over your head. You know that mm-hmm. that you actually just—it's as if you were never born. People just ignore you. Right. It's a dispensing so, of existence. Yeah, you no longer yeah. exist. Really, you're shunned, yeah. and yeah, that's that's so, straight out of cult psychology, though, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, that's 100%. what you're absolutely shocked that the absolute ostracism. It is, and, yeah. And so people, you know, old friends eventually all drift off. Um, people don't respond or argue or even debate you on Twitter or social mm-hmm. media. They just unfollow you. They block you, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think that there is a great deal of fear that what you're saying is going to vibrate and resonate and reverberate with all their own doubts and fears. And mm-hmm. I know myself when I was in the church, I didn't want to talk to people like me because it was a little bit frightening to talk to the apostate, mm-hmm. you know, you know, how, how dreadful it is for that person, you know, who once knew faith but to drift away. And it was sort of attractive but terrifying. So it's much easier to ostracize you. Mm-hmm. You're safer. You're better off shunning. That's what they say, isn't it? You know, it's the idea that we're like a, a virus. We're like a like a COVID, vac- <laughs> COVID virus, you know. <laughs> you can't see us, but we just sort of spread everywhere. And you be- you're hey, better off just locking down, you know. <laughs> Shutting yourself in your house, shutting all those relationships, you know, you can catch it. Watch out. Yeah. It's so true. All right. We're just going to take a short break here in my conversation with Dr. Josie McSkimming. 
When we come back, we're going to get into an area that I really, really wanted to talk to her about because she's a psychotherapist, because she deals with so many clients that are all, they're in religion as well as coming out of religion. I wanted to ask her some questions about mental health and religion, religious trauma syndrome, and then reconstructing your life, your authentic self, or as she calls it, the preferred self after you leave religion. How do you do that? She's going to give us some absolutely fantastic, helpful resources. If that describes you, if you've walked away from a cult or a religion or a high control group, group with undue influence, how do you put the pieces back together? And how did it affect you in terms of your mental health? So Josie is a fantastic resource in that regard. I just wanted to talk about real quickly what's coming up here in the last couple of episodes here in 2021. The next episode that's going to drop is with my good friend, David Hayward, the Naked Pastor. We had a fantastic conversation just a little bit ago talking about our backstory, both as evangelical pastors who walked away from not only the church, but our faith as well. And I talked to him a lot about his cartoons. I was really interested in that. That's something we didn't cover when we talked the last time. And again, I've said this before, it's kind of like old home week. I did an episode a couple weeks ago with a re-release with my sister Valerie that we did back in 2017. Then I've got here in this one, Dr. Josie McSkimming, and I think I might have talked to her that same year, and I also have had David Hayward on a couple times. It's been way too long, and I've just really enjoyed having those chats with returning guests. So I've also had some good feedback, too, from the episode that I did with my sister Valerie, talking about her story, mostly about her encounters becoming pregnant at 16, 17 years old as we grew up in the Bill Gothard cult. So if that resonates with you, I'd like to hear your story as well. So that's what's coming up here as we look at the end of 2021. I've also got a MindShift Zoom call scheduled on the 12th of December with recent guest Jonathan Larson of the TYT, the Young Turks Network. He's been doing an expose on the family, which is better known as, or otherwise known as the Fellowship Foundation. This is the same organization of the Netflix series, the book by Jeff Charlotte that came out a few years ago. He was one of the first, if not the first ones, to blow the whistle on the family. They're kind of a secretive dominionist theocracy cult or evangelical group, I guess you could say. Maybe not a cult exactly, but they're certainly into this dominionist theology, wanting to establish a theocracy, working the corridors of power. Their national prayer breakfast event in February in Washington, D.C., that's really the only public event that they do. And what Jonathan Larson's been able to discover is that he's getting access to the guest list, the invitation lists, who's, who's inviting whom to these prayer breakfasts, and that has led him down some really interesting paths. So we're going to have him come in for our very last Mind Shift Zoom call on the 12th of December. This is something that only you can access as a Patreon supporter of the show. And in fact, speaking of Patreon, I wanted to give a thank you to David Laguerre. He is the latest Patreon supporter of the show at a $5 a month level. So thank you, David, for your support. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. So let's get on back in to the second half of this conversation with my good friend, Dr. Josie McSkimming, coming to us all the way from Sydney, Australia talking about deconstructing when your authentic self breaks through. Well, I'm interested to hear about your work with clients because you, you obviously referred to that, but 
I'm fascinated by this, this topic of mental health and religion, which is obviously right in your wheelhouse, isn't it? That's what you do for a living. How, yeah. in your experience, does, does religion cause mental health problems? Because that's one of the greatest ironies. It's supposed to be freeing and wonderful and loving and amazing and the love of God and all the rest of it. And it causes things like anxiety, depression, PTSD, and all these other symptoms. Well, Why is a, that? How is that? Well, you know, and you've referenced Marlene Winnell, and she... Um, mm -hmm. talks very much about some of the precursors within kind of high demand religions and what that kind of does to your thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's the kind of the fear of leaving because your whole life is tied up with this community, but there is also this um, such a repressive authoritarian ideology, particularly the whole sin, guilt, grace, mm -hmm. endless cycle that you can never kind of be free of sin, so you've always got to have that expiation, so there's always guilt. Look, I've had clients who sit in um, churches and I have advised them to just wear their earbuds during the sermon and listen to music or because listening to sermons about sin and failure and God's wrath. Mm -hmm. Not measuring up. To, yeah, not measuring up. Mm -hmm. Failure can lead to a real collapse in their mental health because when people, you know, and we can say, well, what came first, the depression or the authoritarian religion? Look, some people um, experience depression and I think the religion makes it worse. I mm -hmm. think for some people... There's a certain tenderness there. Maybe there's early trauma in their life. Maybe they've come to the church because of trauma, because of abuse. Lots of people do because they're looking for healing and community and family. Mm. And sermons about God's wrath and not meeting these expectations and, you know, your good deeds are like filthy rags to me, as the Lord says. Mm. These things can really... Um, uh, exacerbate people's existing uh, negative self-thoughts, which are one of the sort of the characteristics of depression. Mm -hmm. So, um, look, I'm not going to kind of venture that one, you know, that it causes it, but I think it certainly can exacerbate depression and anxiety mm -hmm. when it's sort of incipient in people's lives. The other thing that I think that is not spoken about a lot is how Christians deal with the cognitive dissonance, the mental confusion, the doubt. How do they deal with it? A lot of Christians drink a lot of alcohol. They've got a lot of alcohol problems, and they tend wow. not to get, they tend not to get into the illegal drugs because of all the guilt and the legalities. Mm -hmm. But they drink and they eat. So I've talked to a lot of, um, particularly Christian women over the years that have significant binging and purging problems. Mm. So eating disorders? Absolutely. Mm. And the eating can be related to uh, managing their emotional, chaotic emotional state. I don't, I, I don't have research to back this up, but there's a lot of men with pornography addictions. In oh, it's Christian huge. Churches. A lot of Christian leaders, <laughs> pastors, yes. it's true. Yeah, because I used to go to these um, pastors' conferences yeah. and that was a big yeah. thing. 
by the end of the weekend, everybody was confessing their pornography addictions and getting prayed for, you know, so it's a huge issue among pastors. And they for form sure. self-help. They form self-help groups. Oh, yeah. Themselves, which actually is not really very helpful because there's often no accountability mm-hmm. and also they're still in the closed system, whereas a lot of the pornography problems are related to these really warped and constraining and judgmental views of sexual expression and sexual Mm. identity. I do wonder if, you know, those of us, you know, who were converted young had had a lot more sex, if there would be a lot less sexual hangups. (laughs) Well, yeah, coming out of that purity culture, it's like you said, it's such a big deal. And for a pastor, I think the reason why they were so keen to confess it at the pastor's conferences was because their wives wouldn't find out about it. And certainly their churches wouldn't. I mean, if their churches or partners found out about their addiction, that's game over. You'll probably lose your job. And yet they tell you, you need to be transparent. But as a pastor, I could never get up in front and confess the sins that I was struggling with that are considered sins in air quotes, because I probably would have lost my job. You can't really be authentic. So that's another issue, isn't it? You've got to put the mask on. Huge problem. And that's, that's another one of those sites of injury, if you like, where people um, start to feel this extraordinary sense of dissonance or unfreedom in the church, mm-hmm. is that what is preached is not what is practised, obviously. Absolutely. And that is we can be open here and there's forgiveness and there is acceptance. People start being open. There isn't forgiveness and there isn't acceptance. And, of course, it's all named as sin. And a lot of people have a lot of mental health hang-ups that they are managing through, as I say, through addictive behaviours, which they don't seek professional help. It's another bugbear of mine. The church, the churches that I grew up in, they'd be much more inclined to send you off to somebody who's a so-called Christian counsellor whose qualifications are very dubious run mm. somebody who's well qualified, got the appropriate tissue degrees, belongs to professional associations. Because what's most important is they're a part of our club. What's most mm-hmm. important is that they're yeah. a Christian. Stay within and the fold. Yeah. So That's you true. send sort of, you know, gay men, again, in air quotes, struggling mm-hmm. with same sex attraction, such a dreadful phrase. Yes basically gay men and gay women, you'd send them off to your Christian counsellor who is is going to be talking to them about repressing and changing and reorienting this, Mm. not going to actually talk to them about the meaning of this and who they really are in this world. So that used to really bother me as well, that you'd see people with mental health problems They were dealing with various addictions. They were called struggling with same-sex attraction. See how that's kind of pathologised and Mm -hmm. stigmatised, delegitimised, so you have to go off and get help with that struggle. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's not a struggle. shouldn't be a struggle. It doesn't have to be. It's only a struggle if if it's a sin and you have to, God's going to, you know, straighten you out, literally, conversion therapy, which is a thing. It absolutely is. 
Well, I remember talking to a, a friend of mine in the States, and she actually became an atheist off the back of going to Christian counseling. <laughs> you know, the irony of what you were just talking about, because she was struggling in her marriage with some of those teachings that you talked about, that women have to be sub- submissive to their husbands, and they can't have leadership positions in church and all the rest of it. So she went to the pastor and said, look, I'm, I'm having some doubts and questions. He sent her to a Christian therapist who merely reinforced from the Bible all those things that she was already. And then she went and started researching. So wait a minute, this can't be right. And she, that was what led her out. Ironically, was going to a Christian therapist. It wasn't the pastor expected or hoped or I imagine. Certainly wasn't the outcome he was looking for. He was expecting the, which is exactly what the therapist did, reinforce that party line. And then she was supposed to knuckle under and bury that cognitive dissonance. Well, she, you know, pushed back. And said, wait a minute, I'm not, I don't agree. This is not right. Women are not subservient, submissive, and all the rest of it. And she got out eventually because of that experience. And that's a very, I mean, that's just such an incredibly damaging way of treating women in the church who, remember, uh, comprise much more than 50% of churches. This idea of the quiet, gentle spirit and the mm. permanent ordination to men. Mm. It is such a cruel thing to do to women, particularly in 21st century life, mm-hmm. where, you know, women are um, living their lives and have leadership in their careers, and, and that stuffs up marriages too, as we know. That's Absolutely. a huge... Because men don't like it either. Men feel burdened and distressed by having to take leadership and take charge and be Mm -hmm. the spiritual head. Um, A lot of men feel very conflicted and confused about it. For the women, it doesn't work at all. Again, so what, you know, they're told to do, they're not really doing at home because a lot of people want to be far more egalitarian and they are egalitarian. Mm, They actually are. It works in so many cases, doesn't it? And crazy complementarianism that gets taught. You know, we have a group here called Equal But Different, which kind of promotes this permanent subordination of women because, of course, you know, it's part of God's plan and that's how God made us and women are only truly happy if they follow God's plan. Well, you know... News for a lot of people is that often you're only truly happy when you don't follow that plan. Mm -hmm. And this comes back to mental health. And, again, I find that people's mental health vastly improves over time Mm -hmm. as they exit or as they find a very progressive church that suits them. Everybody's got a different journey. So, you know, those people who maybe you know, drinking liters of wine, um, eating, you know, very unhealthily, binging, purging, lots of mental health problems, even, you know, the, the coined expression, the spiritual trauma syndrome, I find that people improve the longer they are away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're and, literally not exposed to the toxicity anymore. yeah. yeah. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually quite profound. And as they form new relationships and as they find new communities and as they join new groups and think, oh, my goodness, you know, that kind of space is created to think differently. You know, 
what the door was open a crack and then it's wide open Mm -hmm. and they just find as we've been talking about about reconstructing preferred or authentic identity people find communities that they feel a real resonance with just takes a while Mm -hmm. Uh, you have to find those communities yeah there's a lot of it online isn't there now you can get into a community and we have them you know the international ones the evangelical communities there's one in Sydney, Exvangelicals, so they have their own closed group where they support each other. There's a, there's a lot. And then I find, interestingly, people leave those groups because they don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't want them anymore. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. It's true. I was a part of a group on Facebook for a few years, and I can look back and say it really, really helped me. It was an ex-evangelical group. But unfortunately, that group started to become really toxic and unhealthy. And I realized that a lot of it was being, they were replicating a lot of the dysfunctions that you find in a typical church setting. And so I left that group, as you say, because I realized that people didn't want to engage in this idea of reconstructing. All they wanted to do was rip on how bad Christianity is and was. And it's true, you know, they had a valid (laughs) point, but you can kind of stew in that toxicity and you're getting stuck in a rut. I think you need to move on. Not everybody does, I think. And that becomes an unhealthy pattern. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in my reconstruction, I kind of thought, would I join the Reformed Synagogue? So I went through a stage of thinking I would convert. Yeah, reconnect your Jewish roots. Yeah, because strictly speaking, I'm not Jewish because it was my father, but it wouldn't be hard to convert. Sure. And went to shul and thought, I I can't join another group. I just can't. I I can't. I, I still might. I can't do another group where there's going to be rules or expectations. Mm. I, I just, it's, it's, too, um, it's too important to me now and to many people not to have that thing, oh, Sunday, got to go to church. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, these are the rules that I have to follow to be a member of this community. Just can't do it. Can't do it. It's so true. And I think it's such a valid point that you raise. It is a journey, isn't it? I've written an article that I'm still gaining traction from it years ago called what happens after people leave the church. And I realized through doing research and talking to ex evangelicals and ex cult members, Mm -hmm. like you said, there's a, there's a spectrum of paths that people take. And it's not that they are on one forever. You might go down and change sort of positions along the spectrum as time goes on. So it's not like, oh, this is me forever. I've arrived now. It's a journey. It's absolutely a journey. I'm not the same person I was five years ago. Uh, One of the biggest pieces is education. Because one one thing you were talking about with your book, we've kind of gone on a similar journey. We've done all this research and we've read all these books and talked to people. We've approached it kind of from an academic point of view. And I know Mm -hmm. education is such a huge part in this whole process, isn't it? Uh, I think that was life-changing for me, um, doing a PhD Mm -hmm. on this, because you have to read so much. I read all the deconversion literature, all those stories of disaffiliation, all the Mm -hmm. memoirs. So you read all the memoirs as well as as all the academic literature. It's it's huge and it's life-changing, but in a really good way. So, I mean, I'm not saying everybody wants to do all that research. Sure. Um, and, of course, they can. there's plenty to read if you want to. 
But sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of freedom to think, well, what do I think? And, you know, their Christian friends or their, the pastors maybe want them to justify their new position, maybe want to talk to them about, but what about Jesus? What about the historical Jesus? They don't actually have to answer any of the apologetic questions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also part of my work with people because a lot of people think they've got to have an answer. They've got to have done their reading. They've got to have their research, why they're not a Christian anymore, that they've kind of found a hole in the historicity of the New Mm. Testament, whatever they, but they actually don't have to. They don't have to answer questions. They don't have to be accountable. They can just say, I don't know, but it's just not making any sense to me. Mm And I'm, um, and I don't have to answer your questions because all those apologetic questions can be really abrasive. Oh, um, yes. Don't you remember asking them to people? We used to oh, do yeah. it ourselves. I was big into I read Josh McDowell, and I used to listen to the Bible Answer okay. Man. I was one of those guys, as you say, who was on the other side debating <laughs> non-Christians and pulling out all the evidence that demands a verdict. You know, oh, that's the title of the book. It demands It was evidence a verdict. that demands a verdict and who yeah. moved the stone and we read yeah. them all. And yes, I did. I think for people to just know that you don't have to read the books and you don't have to have an answer for all of this and it doesn't have to be some kind of um, rational exposition or um, defence. You don't actually have to be defensive of your position. Mm-hmm. You can just say, look, I, I kind of want to be friends, but I really can't talk about it. I don't know how to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. And that's a new thing for people. They don't have to read. They don't want to. I think it's that, as we say, this, this journey to be able to loosen the ties and start shedding some of this, you know. It's like a carapace, isn't it? that you mm-hmm. break open and find the self inside that you actually want to grow and mm. inhabit and live. Got to break that shell open. It could be very thick <laughs> shell. <laughs> You're so right. When it comes to that issue of apologetics, I was just thinking because I went through a thing probably for a couple of years where I felt mm-hmm. like as an ex-evangelical, I had to have an answer. And I was nervous about debating Christians because I thought, man, you know, what if they disprove me? And I, and I think, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm wrong. I've got to get back in there. You know, And I realized, no, you're so right. You don't have to do that. You don't have to don't engage. Have to do it. And they can be very cruel and toxic anyway. I've debated a couple of evangelicals on Twitter and I just think, ah, I'm just going to block them. I'm going to mute them. You know, I'm not yeah. doing it. It's pointless. Yeah. Uh, and I used to think that I used to think I had to have an answer. I've got to be able to respond and to be able to have something that would be, you you know, um, credible Mm -hmm. and watertight. And, you know, that's why I like it. Um, I particularly like Chrissy Stroop, who has that little picture, pictogram of I'm not your mission field Mm -hmm. and why you don't have to answer people's requests. I think that was a real kind of breakthrough Mm. in the evangelical community that, you actually, you're not anybody's mission field and you just don't have to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. And it's unethical for people to think that they can press you or push you, as you say, that they can be a bit, 
they can be nasty because oh very trolling and all sorts yeah, yeah. It's like they, but it's part of that thing of if we're an intellectual virus as it were that we that they could catch it they've got to prove that we're wrong in our yeah. you know apostasy yeah. you know so there's their their mission field is like i'm, I'm a crusader i'm going to go out there and prove that all these ex-evangelicals are wrong and why they're wrong and how we need to avoid that error as Christians. Don't let it happen to you. I've got to save everybody within the church, even. You know, it's that kind of crusading mentality. Yeah, it's, I, you know, kind of as you're talking, I'm just so grateful in a way that I'm kind of pulled back from so many of those discussions. Same and here. by the time people tend to see me uh, in counseling, I certainly have my old clients who I've had for some years who come and go who was still very involved in the church. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite authentic and open with people because I think you have to be mm-hmm. about your own positioning without embellishing it or saying everything. But s- certainly a lot of the new people now that contact me are at a certain stage where, where you know, they're kind of got one or both feet out. Mm-hmm. They might still be attending but they're not really there. Right. Physically in, spiritually out sort of thing. Correct. (laughs) Or or the ones that um, don't go at all, have Mm -hmm. been asked to leave, don't find themselves comfortable anywhere. And, you know, I certainly see um, a lot of gay people because they have a particular legacy of authoritarian, evangelical, fundamentalist theology. They have a particular legacy that does take... Um, some time and you know there's still real mental health and trauma legacies I think for them and as you know gay Christians have a very high incidence of suicide and shockingly true shockingly true while they're Mm -hmm. in the church and even when they leave because Mm -hmm. this sense of being completely unacceptable to God in your inmost being that that is so unacceptable to God uh, it's a kind of a, it's a dilemma that they find so hard to resolve and to move away from that self-harm and suicide seem to become real options. Yep. So sad, isn't it? Yeah, well, this is kind of a corollary question. I have one last question for you about religious trauma mm-hmm. syndrome. Obviously, it relates to what yeah. you're describing, but yeah. how does a person recover from RTS? Because, again, going back to my example of growing up in fundamentalism, I say now proselytizing child is a form of abuse. It really is. And I was, I was, you know, I had religious trauma syndrome. I had rapture anxiety. I had hell induced PTSD on and on. I developed religious scrupulosity as a kid. I was, you know, in fear of this surveilling God was watching me, even reading my thoughts all the time. I could commit a thought crime. It's It's, cruel. Yeah. So here I am as an adult, I'm, I'm now dealing with all the baggage of all that crap from my childhood and young adulthood. And I can see now that part of the reason why I went into ministry was to, you know, sort of steer people away from that sort of toxic theology that I was raised in. So in, in terms of your clients, how do you help them recover from something like religious trauma syndrome? Yeah. Wow. What a big question. I was, yes, my own husband had that terrible rapture anxiety too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's such a big one and God reading your thoughts. Thankfully my own children now are not interested at all at all in any of yeah. their kind of Christian baggage from their youth. And um, I hate to think what I used to say to them as children. Look, 
in terms of recovery, my sense is that people have got to, I endeavour to be very patient and very careful with people, and it depends where they're up to by the time they get to me. Mm-hmm. Some people have already done a bit of work, but some people have not. So I know that this takes time. It is very slow. And I I try and work with people to actually understand the nature of power because it is the whole way the church is constructed is an organism of power. And we don't we not only have the authoritarian power in terms of the theology and who's in leadership and some of the punishments meted out mm-hmm. when you're non-compliant, there's the more subtle power that a lot of people don't realize where they have been the vehicles of um, exerting compliance and um, on other people. They've been the vehicles of accepting it and administering it, that we were all part of this system. Power was kind of dispensed through the whole church. through So through the small groups, through our conversations, mm-hmm. we all were receiving it and doing it to others. And I think it's kind of understanding what was the purpose of that power because that power creates in people chronic self-surveillance. And when people experience that chronic self-surveillance, you've got less need for things like ostracism. You've got less need for punishments. Mm -hmm. I mean, we used to exorcise, you know, the bad people or, you know, have kind of put them in the stocks, the people who were not compliant. We don't need those sorts of punishments anymore because we've invited people into this terrible Mm self-surveillance. And that's my understanding of it. It's the panopticism, that word Mm -hmm. uh, panopticism is very important, that you never know whether you're being looked at. So you're always monitoring yourself. You never know if God's looking or other people are looking. So Mm -hmm. you're always monitoring yourself. And that... I think people kind of understanding how that might have affected them, really piecing together how this power works, starts to help them to shed it a little, to actually take a position in relation to it. You know, if this was happening to other people, would would they think this was okay? Is this okay or not okay? Is Mm -hmm. it sometimes okay or is it never okay? to actually understand the whole way this abusive power works because, make no mistake, it is abuse. It is. And I think you've got to help, well, I certainly think that I help people kind of go on that journey of discovery with me about how power has operated in their life and how that's affected them. Mm. But not just that, how they actually responded, how they tried to keep themselves safe from it because I think people always respond to trauma they always try and protect themselves in some ways because once they start to think about even as a small child even this for you how they tried to respond or how they tried to hide from God or hide from other people then you can start to honor those moments of revolt if you like or those moments of refusal because those moments of refusal kind of part I think of the double life and I think they're part of the authentic self that eventually rises from the depths the oceanic Mm -hmm. depth or part of the kind of the preferred identity because I find that very helpful for people to understand that they're not just 
been affected, they've responded. And when you've responded, you may have some kind of signpost to your own values. So that's how I work with people. So I try and make it strengths-based as well as effects-based. Though the character from 1984, isn't it? He's, he, everyone in that society is being surveilled 24-7, and he thinks he's found a tiny little space in his uh, house where he's off the camera that one little, only, only to find out later that he wasn't the whole time, you know? So you're always being surveilled. And what does it do to your mental health? It's just so destructive. I can remember as a kid, like you yeah. say, trying to hide from God, you know, all the de- terrible things I was doing and the yeah. things I was thinking, but knowing he was reading my thoughts, as you say, watching everything I did, there was nowhere to hide. You know, it's a terribly destructive thing, isn't it? It's it's very destructive. And that those people who you think love you and who you trust in this community are vehicles of it. So even as an older Mm -hmm. person, when I would seek help, I had a kind of a failed engagement as we do, sought help, and then you're kind of shamed around that because you're not the quiet and gentle spirit and so you've got to be engaged in chronic self-surveillance every moment of the day, see if you can be that quiet and gentle spirit. About time you were. So you had to inwardly reflect and do that because mm-hmm. this was your fault. There's a lot of that. It's, it's so destructive. And that's why Marlene's work is, is very important because she is actually naming it um, as mm-hmm. abuse. I'm very interested in not just calling it a syndrome, but very much I'm very conscious of not wanting to individualise this or, you know, have people suffering from because I think once you've actually identified that you may have some form of religious trauma, maybe it's like I don't like saying post-traumatic syndrome. I like just saying Mm post-trauma. I just call it spiritual trauma. It's not a syndrome. It's not a syndrome. It's, it's a thing. That, it's a thing. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you um, should be stigmatized or necessarily that it's a, a diagnostic label. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. You've had mm-hmm. trauma and you're now going to spend the rest of your life figuring out what was the trauma, how you responded to it, and to find and to rebuild a sense of ethical purpose and ethical meaning. Mm-hmm. and you'll get better you will get better yeah and that's where a, a person like yourself isn't it where mm-hmm. you might need therapy you might need counseling mm-hmm. so speaking mm-hmm. of which how can people get a hold of you where could they find you because you <laughs> could do a zoom call with someone from another country i mean i'm in the uk I, you're in australia I, because I you're not could, in australia i could and i do right so however, how can people find you oh there's a however, however. i'm well my however is that I'm really busy. Right, your book's solid, which <laughs> well, is a good problem to have, I guess. I've also, we're just coming through a terrible wave of COVID here, as mm-hmm. I've said to you in Sydney, because I see people with all kinds of mental health problems. I don't just deal with people with religious trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of flat out trying to help people. So I'm imagining that I'll be able to take some new people on Um probably towards the end of the year or next year, but not at the moment. Mm. And I'm happy for people to be in touch with me. If people just want to be in touch with me or, you know, read my book or just follow me on Twitter or just know I'm there, that can be good too. 
Right. So Thank give us the name you. of your book and how, how can they find you on Twitter then? Oh, sure. Well, I'm easy on Twitter because I'm not anonymous. So I'm just Josie McSkimming on Twitter. Right. So that's easy. That's easy. And I do that on purpose because I don't want to be anonymous. I want to be frank. And, um, you know, I'm also very interested in the politics of Australia where we have a Pentecostal prime minister. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of us ex-fees. Um, are very concerned around absolutely the, yeah, the sort of religious theocracy that kind of we see creeping into Australian politics. Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm really I feel as though I'm an activist on that. So I'm easy to find in that way. Um, the book is called uh, Leaving Christianity, no, Leaving Christian Fundamentalism and the Reconstruction of Identity. So it says it all, doesn't it? It's all right there. It does what it says it's on the tin. It's all right there. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much, Dr. Josie McSkimming. Again, we got it. We can't go so long without connecting yeah. again. It's well, been way you know, too I'm long. Glad, I'm glad you're all okay. And I'm glad you don't have COVID. And I'm glad no, we're all true. getting through this we're getting really, through really it. hard time in the world. Yeah. It's true, especially with the Delta variant coming up. We're experiencing a surge here in the UK. I've had. Yeah two or three yeah. colleagues at work catch it. My ex-partner, she caught it, you know, so it's it's definitely a, it's still a problem here in this country. Oh, so huge. Look, it's a huge it's, issue. Yeah, we've got a very freshly vaccinated population here, so it's less of a problem. But, of course, then it starts to wane, and as we've seen in other countries. So, mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, but I'm, I'm really happy to talk about this. And, you know, I can assure people listening to this that, I may sound really sure now, but I was terrified, you know, mm-hmm. around 2009, 2010 of speaking publicly. I, had, I felt frank fear. I could feel my heart beating in my chest mm-hmm. with all those old fears. Um, so if they're feeling like that, you know, will I ever be able to find some kind of remaking of the self? Yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. It is possible. Kind to yourself, self-compassion, and find a community of people who get it that you can so true. And one thing that's come out very clearly, I think, in our conversation is this is a journey. It's a process. You're not you've not arrived today. In six months, a year, five years, you're going to be in a completely different place and space. So that's all part of this experience. Don't panic or stress out. I think it's such a good point, isn't it? Yeah, I think don't panic, don't panic and Mm -hmm. understand that you do have residual mental health issues. But I observe that as people go along, their mental health improves. I know that's a very general statement because other things can happen in people's life that kind of affect your mental health. But I certainly find that people who find just over time their their depression, their self-hate, their self-loathing, their chronic self-criticism, drinking, eating problems, all those addiction problems, they they do start to ease. And you do, you may need professional help. Mm-hmm. I've got it's so a, true. I, and if I can't help people, I'll try and refer them on to somebody who can. Right. That's a great resource. Listen, thank you so much for There's taking the time out. There's people who do this work. I mean, mm-hmm. how many of us are kind of reconstructed That's Christians true. who actually have um, proper psychological qualifications. It's not that many. Not that That's many. Why I'm too busy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good resource, and for sure, isn't it? 
Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, sharing your story. Let's not I wait. You know, useful. <laughs> it is very useful. <laughs> thank you so much. We will definitely okay. not wait. So All many right. Years. Go Take and enjoy care. your day. Thank you, Josie. Speak to you soon. Yes, yeah, see you soon. Bye.